Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. I think, in general, everyone wants to lead a good life. They want the good life. And what I mean by that is we want a sense of contentment and satisfaction. I don't know that many people wake up in the morning and say, I just can't wait to be miserable today. And they put on socks that don't match and, uh, you know, and then walk out the door. I, I think people generally, they want to live a good, content, satisfied life. In fact, in a recent Gallup poll, six out of seven Americans uh, who were surveyed said that they consider their lives to be largely satisfactory. They're really happy and content uh, with the condition of their personal lives. The question I asked after reading that article was, I wonder what scorecard we're playing by. And those six out of seven Americans that say they are largely satisfied with their personal lives are they using the same scorecard that God uses? I can't imagine a more devastating thing than for us to use the wrong scorecard so that we would look at our lives filled with brokenness and sin and turmoil and we would say, that's the good life. That we would be content and satisfied in all kinds of human misery just because we don't know the word of God or we don't live in his way. There's a better way for us to live, and and that's the way that Paul is calling this church in Ephesus to live as well. Just in case you are with us today for the first time, uh, we've been in a study of 1 Timothy for a few weeks now. And here's what we found. Paul writes this letter to his ministry partner, Timothy, and Timothy is in a city called Ephesus, and the church in Ephesus is a train wreck an absolute train wreck. Uh, There are false teachers that have positions of authority and influence and social clout, and they are ripping that church apart. The church at Ephesus is known for its fighting, its inward focus, and its effectiveness at repelling people from the gospel, from Jesus Christ. And so Paul, from the opening words of this letter, has been fighting against the false teachers and working to bring the church back to a place of health as it focuses on Christ and then lives a godly life. If you had to say, what's the theme of 1 Timothy? It's one word. It's godliness. And godliness is that way of living that reflects Christ in us. This is not so much a letter about theology. It's a letter about practice, living, day-to-day, in-and-out, being a follower of Jesus Christ in very practical and visible ways. Now, when we get to chapter 6, we're towards the end of the letter, and Paul begins to land the plane by circling back to things he talked about at the very beginning of the letter. Chapter 1 and chapter 6 are really tidy bookends. For all of you that love symmetry, this is your letter. He, he, with themes he starts in chapter 1, he comes back to them in chapter 6, and we'll see that this morning as we hear Paul talk about false teachers and the danger they impose on the church and the better way of following Jesus Christ. Paul's working to equip Timothy and equip that church to turn away from that brokenness and instead to live in the contentment, the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. He wants them to live the good life, if we could say it that way. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is for you to experience the good life God has for you. Even if this is your first Sunday with us in this study, what Paul gives us today is a direction away from destruction 
and towards contentment, satisfaction, deep abiding joy in Jesus Christ. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start at the very end of verse 2, and we'll read to verse 10. Paul writes this. He says, Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, with your eye still on the page, I want to show you a structure for this passage that will inform the way we're going to approach it this morning. Uh, This passage can be broken very neatly into three different sections. It looks like this. There's a warning, there's a blessing, and there's a warning. So the first warning comes from the end of verse 2 through verse 5. And then the blessing is verses 6 and 7 and 8. And then the second warning is verses 9 and 10. So you've got warning, blessing, warning. It's kind of like a, a blessing sandwich. I guess the warnings are like the, the buns of the loaf of bread or something. I don't know. Anyways, here's what we've got. Warning, blessing, warning. Here's how we're going to approach it this morning. I'm going to rearrange the material a bit because it works this way also. We're going to look first at these warnings and then lastly at the blessing that Paul promises to us when we walk with Christ. All this is intended to steer us away from destruction and point us towards a content, good, satisfied life in Jesus Christ. So, Paul starts with a warning, a danger. And the first danger Paul talks about is the danger of heresy. Heresy is the word that I'm using to describe Paul's warning in verse 3. So, Paul opens this section in verse 3 with an if then statement, this conditional statement. Look at what he says in verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness. So that's the conditional part of this statement. If, if this person teaches these things. And, And what do you call a teaching or a doctrine that does not agree with the teaching of Jesus and does not promote godliness? I call that heresy. So that's my blanket term to cover all that Paul describes in this section. And Paul gives three descriptions of this concept in verse 3. He calls this heresy false doctrine or false teaching. Second, he calls it disagreement with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he calls it disagreement uh, with the teaching that promotes godliness. Now, those aren't three different things. It's not that false doctrine, disagreeing with Jesus not promoting godliness, that those are three different types of heresy. It's all one big heresy. Essentially, it's rejecting the word of Christ. It's rejecting Christ 
and going our own way. These false teachers are not giving a different way of viewing Jesus, a deeper wisdom and knowledge that they have that we don't. These false teachers are taking their audience, ripping them away from Jesus Christ, and pointing them in a, towards a path of destruction. It's a dangerous, dangerous heresy that they're promoting. So Paul tells us in verses 4 and 5 why it's so bad to believe this. Why is it dangerous for us to attach our lives to heresy? Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, that one who teaches this false doctrine is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. And from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement. So Paul describes the teachers of heresy this way. In verse 4, he says, first of all, this teacher is conceited. We all have an idea of what conceit looks like. We might think of arrogance, a self-centeredness, me-first type of mentality. Certainly that's conceit, but when you take conceit and you give it religious authority or position of influence in the church, things get real nasty real fast. This conceited heresy teacher does not teach the words of Christ, does not take this word faithfully given to the saints and delivers it to the church. He doesn't do that. This conceited teacher sees himself as a source of truth. And so he sees in himself the ways and the words of God makes these things up. That's an ultimate conceit. It is an evil narcissism. That person who rejects the words of Christ is conceited. You take that rotten core, give it a pulpit, and you've got real disaster on your hands. Next, Paul's us that that conceited teacher understands nothing. A teacher who understands nothing. Paul's described these false teachers the same way earlier in the letter. Way back in chapter 1, verse 7, these false teachers are in Paul's bullseye from the beginning of the letter. And he says, look, these people, all they do is babble. They don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. They teach nonsense. They may be well-spoken. They may have credentials. They may have social clout. The truth is they are conceited fools. These people are not just disasters in and of themselves, though. They breed disaster and destruction among people in their orbit. Verse 4, he has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. They like to fight over nonsense. And from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. So the false teacher loves to fight, loves to argue. Contrary to the gospel, chapter 1, Paul says it promotes love. Contrary to these feelings, this, uh, treating each other as family, these people want to fight. And they're going to fight over nonsense words. Paul uses four words to describe the sad result of their heresy. He says it promotes envy, quarreling, slander, and evil suspicions. All four of those things happen only in the context of a relationship. These people rip their own souls apart, and then they rip apart the family of faith as well. And all this is so contrary to what Paul has called for from Timothy. Remember chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul sets the tone for the kind of relationships Timothy is to have in the church. Do you remember what he said there? He said, Timothy, 
don't rebuke an older man harshly, but encourage him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That's such a very different picture of what the life of the church in Christ is to be compared to this right here. Envy, strife, evils of all kinds, all of this stuff. So these false teachers do real serious damage to the church. And it doesn't stop there. Paul says these kinds of people that promote this infighting, they're people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Paul is not slapping a coexist bumper sticker on his car anytime soon. It's not that Paul hates. It's that Paul clearly warns against soul-destroying heresy. You can't hold hands and drink a Coke together with a false teacher that wants to rip your soul to shreds with their lies. These false teachers are conceited, understand nothing, relationally destructive, and finally, they pervert godliness. Last line there, verse 5, Paul says these false teachers imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. They will walk somewhat in the way of Christ as long as it benefits them in the belief that if I do good to God, he'll do good to me. If I stand up here and teach something and have some position, then I'm going to get paid and money's going to come my way. They think godliness is a way to material gain. These people are such fools, they don't even understand this basic concept of what it is to live a holy life, to honor God. They're not interested in godliness. They're interested in a paycheck. Godliness isn't a goal for them. Godliness is a tool to get some greater goal, and in their minds, it's money. I want to be godly so I can have more stuff, accumulate more wealth. Now, this concept, godliness as a way to material gain, it's a perspective that is so widespread in our culture. The easy target here would be prosperity gospel, health and wealth preachers and teachers. If you're messed up in that, set an appointment with me this week. We've got to get in the Word together. It is a mess, and it will destroy you. But it's easy here for us to just badmouth the prosperity gospel as if this verse means something for people someplace else rather than for us. Here's something a little closer to home. The idea that godliness is a way to material gain comes out in this way of thinking, what I would call Christian karma. The idea that if I do good things for God, he'll do good things for me. If I put in good, God's going to give back good. And many of you may come from a religious background steeped in guilt. So that your religious duties and your religious observations are also that God will do you well and not do bad things to you. This is heresy. This is not gospel. It may come packaged with Christian labels, but this is not the God of the Bible. That way of thinking that godliness is a way of material gain, or I do good to God and he'll do good to me, that way of thinking ignores the goodness that God has already showered on us in Christ. It lessens the coming of God to us in Jesus Christ and laying his life down on the cross. It says there's more good for me than just that, And so I'll be good to God, and he'll be good to me, and then we'll get along just fine. 
It's a wretched way of approaching God. It exchanges a gospel of grace for a gospel of merit. And you don't want that. Because no matter how much good you think you've got in the tank, sister, brother, you don't have enough. That's why God is good. I'm not good. God's good. And he's proven that by giving us his son. So you've got to hear the warning of Paul this morning. That, that belief, I do good to God and he'll do good to me, oh, it is corrupt to the core. There's a better way. There's a gospel way in Jesus Christ. If these false teachers were writing Psalm 23, it would start this way. The Lord is my shepherd because I'm a good sheep. But I like the original. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. There's nothing I lack because God is my shepherd. Out of his goodness and his grace and his mercy, he's called me and he loves me. So for us, there's a warning here, a a danger for us to be aware of. That danger is heresy, teaching that departs from the word of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be on on uber alert so that we're sniffing out heresy under every rock. We don't want to turn this into another breeding ground for fights and quarrels. But We just have to be aware for the sake of our own souls, our worship, and the mission of the church that we align our lives with teaching that agrees with the words of Christ. Let me show you a real quick little test just from these verses Four questions you can use to evaluate uh, some message or messenger that comes in the name of Christ. How can I know that I'm dealing with truth and not heresy? These are four good evaluation questions to ask that come just right from this text. One, does the message agree with Scripture? That's just, anytime I hear someone with a microphone say, the Lord has spoken to me and says, I've got to hear Scripture next or I've got no interest in what you have to say. I don't care how bleached your teeth are, how tan your skin is, how many books your ministry sold, what microphone you've got. We've got to have the Word of God. Does the message agree with Scripture? Two, does the messenger have the character of Jesus? In our culture, character and leadership don't always go hand in hand. But in the pulpit, it must. We cannot have corrupt leaders speaking the good message of Christ. Does the messenger have the character of Christ? Third test, does the message unite people around Jesus? And fourth, does the message make godliness a tool or a goal? There's a profound difference between the two. Do you want to live a good life? Do you want to be content in Christ? If so, then align your life with the teachings of Christ and turn away from all manners of heresy. There's a second danger that Paul warns us about in this passage, and that second danger is materialism. So now we we skip from verse 4 down to verse 9, or verse 5 down to verse 9. And here Paul articulates this next warning. He names the evil in verse 9 in the opening line he says but those who want to be rich now paul is not simply describing people who 
or trying to earn money. He's speaking of non-believers within the church at Ephesus for whom money is their God. In verse 10, he describes these people as loving and craving money. These are people who desire, love, and crave money when instead they should desire, love, and crave the Lord, but they've chosen a different God for themselves. And what kind of damage is done when money is your God? Verse 9, Paul tells us this. He says, these people fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. So there is a downward progression in the words Paul uses here in verse 9. It starts with a temptation. And when you succumb to that temptation, the trap is set. And when you are in the trap, you develop foolish desires which ultimately lead you to plunge your life into ruin and destruction. It starts out so subtle, and it ends with complete destruction. What kind of destruction? Well, it's a spiritual destruction at the least. And in verse 10, Paul says that people who crave money, they have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. This is really graphic language pierced themselves with griefs. They take grief and they impale themselves with it. Many griefs. There's a grief. I love money. Give it to me. Stick it in in me. Put this grief in me. I want it in me. They buy their own destruction. Why would a person do this? Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, in that verse, there's an interpreter's choice made to put the, the small word A. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's no gr- Greek equivalent of the word, our word A uh, in that language. So a translator makes the choice. I'm going to drop an A in right here. And the reason the translator does that is because we don't want to make some definitive theological statement that all evil just comes from a love of money. So I, the translator says, I, I want to put the A in there, uh, that money is a root, a root of all kinds of evil. So I understand that. That's good hermeneutics. That makes sense. There's no reason to doubt this translation or, or to think less of it. But I just want us to be careful here. Paul's not interested in lessening the danger money poses in our spirituality. Paul's swinging a hammer. He's not trying to comfort. He is warning people, alerting them to danger. Money is a root of all kinds of evil. I'm so glad that doesn't apply to any of us this morning. Oh, man, that's great. Uh, Martin Luther supposedly said that people need to experience three conversions. Conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, and conversion of the purse. Jesus never treated money as morally neutral. For Christ, money is an idolatry. We must be converted from in order for us to be converted to him. So you and I must engage in the battle of freeing ourselves from the clutches of this false security that we have in our things. Good Baptists, that's all of you, right? Good Baptists are conditioned to say amen when the preacher talks about missions. 
and to flinch when he talks about money. But we've got to listen to the word of God in this. It's such an intensely personal issue. In many ways, our money is like coined personality. The way we use it really reflects who we are. And so we've got to believe the words of Christ when it comes to our money. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. We're going to close our service today with an old hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Opening line of that song, Take My Life and Let It Be, Consecrated Lord to Thee. We're singing, God, make me holy. Let my life be consecrated to You. In verse 4 of this beautiful, high-octane hymn, starts this way. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. The church has always understood that a relationship with money has a deep impact on our holiness, on our contentment. So for the Christian, money is not a goal, it's a tool. We capture money, we subdue it, we use it for greater goals that go far beyond mere economics. Money can rot your soul or it can win souls, and we must not treat that evil lightly. So Paul's warned us now about two serious dangers in the life of the church, in the life of believers, heresy and materialism. And so now you might think, oh, man, I'm glad those dangers are out of the way. The negative stuff is done. Now we can get to something positive. But if those two warnings are simply hard stuff, then you're missing the best part. There is grace to you in these two warnings that God would see fit to say, wake up from your heresy. Wake up from your materialism. I've called you to something far greater far better. Sister, I've got a better life for you in Christ. Brother, I've got something for you. You wouldn't imagine how good it is if I told you. This is God's grace to us. We don't like the warnings because they poke and they prod, they convict. But there is grace in the heaviness that Christ brings in that conviction. How good is God to tell you you're headed for destruction, but if you turn to Christ, you'll be saved. Materialism says the more money you have, the more secure you will be. The gospel says you're a desperate sinner, but Christ died in your place and will forgive you and save you and hold you forever. Money is a lousy God. These warnings are calling you to believe Christ and entrust your life to him. So those two warnings, heresy, materialism, and now we get to the blessing sandwiched right in the middle of this passage, verses 6, 7, and 8. The blessing is this. The blessing is godliness, with contentment. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. This little line in verse 6 packs a huge punch. Godliness with contentment is great gain. First, it reaches into both of those warnings and dismantles those dangers entirely. So godliness comes only through knowing the words of Christ, the teachings about Christ, only from experiencing the gospel. So heresy is dismantled here. And then contentment comes only through trusting Christ to provide for you, to care for you. Materialism is dismantled here. Heresy and materialism destroyed in one little sentence. 
And second, Paul shows how godliness and contentment yield a better result than money. Money may, for some, result in a material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Material gain, far lesser than the great gain of walking with Jesus Christ. This is not a promise of financial reward, but it's a promise of Christ's provision for us now and forever. And that's a type of gain that money can never provide. How is this kind of attitude towards life possible? Well, verse 7, he tells us we need to have this eternal perspective. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out. So we're not going to center our lives around things that fade away, that have no lasting eternal value. I've got an eternal perspective. I came in with an empty wallet. I'm going out with an empty wallet. I want to make sure that my life is filled by Jesus Christ and trust in him. And given this eternal perspective, Paul reminds us of the simple benefits of things like food and clothing. These are really all that we need. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. You may have already penciled in the word cell phone, but that's not what Paul's talking about. If we have food and clothing. So does this mean that Paul intends for his readers to sell everything and give it to the poor? That's not what Paul is calling us to. That's not what Christ calls us to. Poverty is no more a path to automatic holiness than wealth is. Whether you're rich or poor, there's still a corrupt human soul in play. And let me just tell you, I've known very well what it is to be greedy with crummy cars. I know what I would be like with a good car. Wealth and poverty are not what impact our holiness automatically. So what does godliness with contentment look like in our lives? Well, there's a not-so-secret ingredient to our contentment, and that contentment is knowing that Christ has set us free from sin. Christian contentment is never based on circumstances. When we think, when I think of contentment, I have uh, pictures from social media that pop up in my mind, beach scenes, sunsets, a cup of coffee on the back porch, things that are idyllic and serene, and, and I love those pictures, and I love living vicariously through other people's <laughs> vacation pictures and things like that, but that's not the contentment that we're seeking. Christian contentment is so very different. Christian contentment is not circumstantial. It's positional. I can have an aesthetic on my social media that just blows people's minds away, but if, if my heart is not right with Christ, I'm headed for fire. There's a different contentment Christ calls us to and holds us for. So when our sin has been dealt with, when our faith is in Christ, when I'm right with God because of his mercy and grace to me, then I, I don't care what the circumstance is. Bring on every circumstance and I will be content in Christ. This is a common theme in Paul's writings. He doesn't just write this to the church in Ephesus. He wrote it to the church in Philippi as well. He said to the church there, as he wrote from prison, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with a little, and I know how to make do with a lot. So Christian contentment is radically countercultural. 
Our contentment is not circumstantial, it's positional. With that contentment comes perseverance and rejoicing and graciousness to others, a lack of worry and an abundance of prayer and peace and hope everlasting. That's the contentment of Christ in us. In the midst of the harshest trials, God's people have a rock-solid contentment. The same they see modeled in our Savior on the cross and the same that has carried the church through turmoil of so many kinds through so many years. That's a life God has created us for. God wants you to have a contented life, a satisfied life, a glorious life in Jesus Christ. And with that life may come trials of many kinds. We may be hard-pressed on every side, but we're not destroyed. We are not crushed because Christ is our King. And Paul's warned us about some dangers this morning, heresy and materialism, and he's urged us towards godly contentment. And so when Paul calls us to live this good life, he's calling us to lift our eyes above our culture, to set them on Christ, that we would live our lives, regardless of the circumstances, in the supernatural peace of God. What's that look like practically? Uh, In 2014... Two Americans were working in Liberia among people who were ravaged by the Ebola virus. And you probably heard these news reports. Uh, both Dr. Kent Brantley and Nurse Nancy Wrightbull contracted Ebola. Uh, Nancy's son at the time was on staff at a church uh, near where we lived. And, uh, and so we got the story firsthand from him. Then also it came through the media. But uh, both of these people, Dr. Brantley and Nancy, they took major heat from American citizens who called them reckless and foolish. Uh, Dr. Brantley was interviewed after his miraculous recovery. Nancy also recovered from the sickness. Dr. Brantley was quoted as saying this. He said, people have asked me if my faith saved me from Ebola, as in a physical healing. In a very real way, it was my faith that got me Ebola. It was the living out of our faith that put us in a place where we were at very real risk of getting Ebola. And that changes my perspective on faith. It's not something that makes you safe. So yes, my faith put me at risk of Ebola, but it's also what I clung to at the most difficult times of my illness. Not faith that because I follow Jesus, I'm going to get well, I'm going to recover, but faith that says I got this disease by following Jesus So whether I live or die, I'm okay with that. And that brought me a tremendous amount of peace. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your riches to us in Jesus Christ. Forgive us for valuing dollars and cents over the eternal Son, Son of God who laid down His life for us. Holy Spirit, lead us in repentance as we turn away from the idolatry of stuff, as we turn away from heresies of every kind to cling to the Word and to walk in the provision that You have for us. 
I trust that through your word this morning, you're opening eyes to the glory of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The world has lied to us, lies to us all the time, gives us corrupt values, calls us to put our hope in things that are absolutely fading away and not worthy of hope. And we're so good at making gods out of the tiniest piles of money. So Lord, would you open eyes this morning to your love and your mercy and your grace to us in Christ. Deliver us from this evil that we might know abundant life. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith today, God, that you would show us the better way, that we would live in complete contentment because of our position in Christ. Let us be a faithful witness in the midst of every hardship. Let our supernatural contentment and peace that comes from Christ be a witness to the people around us, that when the difficult days come our ways, we would suffer well, We would trust you regardless, knowing that our hope, our eternities are with you. Thank you for the great gain you promise us in Jesus Christ. He is our gain. He is our everything. We're glad to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.